Sometimes studying the Word of God is like a cool breeze on a hot day. Refreshing, just pours into your life, encourages, fills you up. Sometimes coming to the text, reading it, studying it, pouring over it, is like driving on a treacherous and confusing road in unfamiliar land. Today's passage is definitely the latter. I hope you have brought your hard hats and your seatbelts, because you're going to need to buckle up and get ready. We are looking at Numbers chapters 5 and 6. You can open up there in your Bibles, Numbers chapters 5 and 6. Every time in the past that I've spoken on a difficult passage, I've often thought this is the hardest passage I've ever preached on. This one might now be taking the top of that list for a while. It is a very very difficult passage. I did put it out in the email. I hope some of you read it. And if you did, you were probably thoroughly confused as to what is this? Why does this matter? Why does God have this in scripture? And and even if we can answer all those questions, there's this lingering question of like, who cares? It doesn't seem like any of this should apply to us today. It is strange laws that seem archaic and irrelevant. But one of our founding ideas here at Orchard is that the word of God is important and that it is our authority. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So it is our role, part of our role as God's people to come to the table of God's word with humility and say, Father, teach us. We will open our hearts and minds and we will listen. So I'm going to challenge you to do that today. Set aside judgment. You're going to want to jump in and say, why is God doing this? This seems unfair. This seems wrong. That's going to come up a lot throughout the book of Numbers. I'm going to ask you prayerfully to consider that God is God and we are not. And we need to come and be taught by him and learn from him. My hope today for the sermon is to go through Numbers chapters 5 and 6 and understand what these laws meant for the people of Israel in their time. And that's going to be hard because this is a very foreign concept to us, very foreign people, very foreign culture. But that God gave them these laws for a purpose. And then I want, Lord willing, if there's enough time, to pull back and look at the big picture of how these ideas fit in with all of Scripture and especially how they point us to Jesus Christ. Because as hard as these are, if we're willing to really wrestle with them and be taught by them, we will get a better picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's my hope this morning. Let's bow in a word of prayer and ask the Lord's blessing on this time and ask him to prepare our hearts as we come to this difficult passage. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in your children to understand what it is that you're teaching us, to come with humility and say, you are God and we are not. We want to be taught by you that it is not our role to sit in judgment on you. And Father, I pray ultimately that you would point our eyes to your son, Jesus, and how he so perfectly fulfills these themes and these laws and teaches us then what these things mean in our lives today. So be with us and help us through this difficult text. In your name we pray, amen. 
As we come to chapters 5 and 6, the overwhelming topic throughout these chapters is purity. Purity for God's people. God's people were to be different because they are God's people. They cannot go on living like everybody else in the world. They are called to be different. Now, let me set the scene in case you haven't been with us. The book of Numbers takes place right after Moses and the Israelites come out of Egypt. They're delivered through the Red Sea. It's this profound miracle. And God brings his people to Mount Sinai, and there he establishes the covenant through Moses. And he says, look, I am your God. I've chosen you. I've claimed you. I have saved you. Now, here's how this relationship's going to work. And he goes through the Old Testament law. You might know some of the Ten Commandments. It's kind of a summary, a bullet point of the Old Testament law. And now here at the beginning of Numbers, they are about to leave Mount Sinai, travel through the rest of the wilderness to the promised land. That's the plan. And God, in these first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers, is preparing his people for that journey. And it's not just a physical preparation. There's some of that how to pack things up, how to travel, where to camp. But it's a spiritual preparation. He wants them to know as they're traveling through the wilderness, on the way to the promised land, he wants them to know who he is and who they are supposed to be as his people. He is shaping them. The book starts in chapter 1 by counting all those saved out of Egypt, those saved by God, brought through the Red Sea. Then in chapter 2, he arranges their camp with God at the very center. And we looked at how that meant God was to be the center of their nation and the center of their lives. In chapters 3 and 4, he sets up the priests and the Levites to care for and protect the holiness of the tabernacle, this place that God dwelt in their midst. And that's what makes them different. And so here in chapters 5 and 6 is the outworking of the truth that God dwells with them. The difference that should make in their lives. There are four laws on purity in these two chapters. Two of them are very broad, kind of overarching. Two of them are very specific and very difficult for us to understand. As we go through these, and I'm going to try to move quickly, I want you to remember... God's perfect holiness and the holiness of his presence is what determines the purity of God's people. Their day-to-day activities, the things they are willing to do and not willing to do, are determined by the fact that God, almighty, all holy, is present with them. So let's look at the two overarching kind of broader laws in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I am not going to read this whole text. It is way too long. I'm going to read some of it and summarize some of it. I really encourage you to have the text open on your lap. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere in one of the chairs in front of you underneath. Feel free to grab that and use it. These two overarching laws deal with ritual purity and defilement. And then the second law deals with someone who has wronged another person and what they should do. So let's start with this idea of removing impurities from the camp. So we're going to jump right into the deep end here. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike, send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so, they sent them outside the camp. 
They did just as the Lord had instructed Moses. Now, this is interesting for many reasons. Number one, all of these laws that we're going to deal with, at least in the broad structure, have been given before in the book of Deuteronomy, or in the book of Leviticus, rather. So God is rehashing some of these laws before they leave throughout the wilderness. But here he starts with this overarching idea of removing defilement or impurity from the camp. And this is where we get into something already that's so foreign to our concept. We want to look at this as some sort of biological issue of of getting rid of disease. And it certainly had an impact on that, but that was not the point. The point was removing those things that were contrary to God's will. Now, let me explain. God is a God of life. He is the author of life and the creator of life. And when Adam and Eve sinned, death enters the world. And in our day-to-day existence, in our societies, even in our bodies and the biological functions of our bodies, death is at work. And we see impacts of that all the time. Things that don't work the way they should. Death is an abomination in the kingdom of God. It is not part of his plan. It is not something we should rejoice. Going to heaven, great. Being with Jesus, that's phenomenal. But death itself, the breakdown of life and loss of life, that was never intended in God's kingdom. That is because of sin. And so here in these laws, I'm not going to go into all the details, but what we have is this idea of removing everything from the camp that is an outworking of the touch of death in their lives. There are things especially uh, removing anybody that has a defiling skin disease, things like leprosy. This was a, a judgment on God for various sins. Removing those that had certain bodily discharges. I'm not going to go into that. Removing those that had contact with a dead body. That one's going to be crucial. I you know you're like, really? That one's crucial? It's a great Halloween sermon. <laughs> but listen for that phrase. It's going to come up again and again throughout these chapters. They were to be sent outside the camp. Now, that's what this passage says. That's all it says. Send them outside the camp. Well, great. What was supposed to happen to them? There are other laws we could look at to see they could come back of a certain period of time of cleansing, but that's not what this passage is about. All God is focusing his people on in this passage is you must remove from the people of God those things that are influenced by, impacted by the workings of death among you. God's people dwelling in God's holy presence are to be different. They are to be kept pure. Now the next section he goes into verses five and t- or five through ten. Oh, I've skipped something. Sorry. There's a lot going on today. Uh, Numbers chapter 5, verse 3. This is important. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. That's the key there. God's not just saying, ooh, it's gross, get them out. He says, I dwell among you. And God is holy. So this dictates the things that they need to weigh and say this is in line or out of line with God's holy presence. Let's look at verses 5 through 10. The laws about retribution or restitution rather for wrongs. Let me read verses 5 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done. 
add a fifth to the value to it and give it all to the person they have wronged. But if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest, along with the ram with which atonement is made for the wrongdoer. All the sacred contributions the Israelites bring to a priest will belong to him. Sacred things belong to their owners, but what they give to the priest will belong to the priest. Basically, the gist of this passage is, look, if you have wronged someone, and this is probably in the area of financially, um, if you owed someone money, you failed to give it back, you cheated somebody, you've wronged somebody in some way, you failed to fulfill a vow, If you have wronged somebody in some way, you need to pay back what you owe. All right, that's a no-brainer, right? We get that. You also are supposed to pay back more than you owe. This is an effort to make it right. Verse 6 is really key here. He says, say to the Israelite, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way, and the language of this is really intriguing, because the Hebrew kind of literally says, who wrongs somebody in a way that is common to Adam. Just a normal way of living in sin, such as what Adam did. That's really the word there for man, who wrongs someone in a way that is common to man. That might be another uh, example or a way to translate that. So he's saying, look, as you're living as sinners in this sinful world, there's going to become problems between you and other people. Things are going to come up. And you need to make it right. And then he says, he adds this. He says, someone who has wronged someone in some way and who is unfaithful to the Lord. So just like in the purity issue where he brings in God's presence, here he says the issue is not so much that you've wronged someone. It's even bigger than that. It's that by wronging someone, you have been unfaithful to the Lord. And the unwritten subtext is, who dwells in your midst? God is with them, and they are called to be different. Chapter 5 starts with these two overarching laws. Now, in case you're like, wow, these things are really hard. These are the easy ones. We're about to get into the hard ones. said, buckle up. We're doing okay on time. We'll see what happens. This is probably the longest sermon that I have ever put together, so we'll see how we go. I know that just made you want to pay attention. (laughs) Their daily actions were to reflect their identity as God's holy people. That's what's going on here. Their daily actions were to reflect their identity as God's holy people. So he gives them these two overarching laws. Now he's going to give them two very specific laws. The overarching laws are about removing impurity and restitution for wrongs. The specific laws are about a very specific way that someone might wrong someone and about an extreme form of purity. So these things go together. These themes are being developed. Let's look at these two very specific laws. And we jump right into the deep end with the test for the unfaithful wife. Chapter 5, verses 11 through 31, I am not going to read the whole thing. I do challenge you and encourage you to read it on your own. You will find it very difficult. The situation is this. If a woman is suspected of adultery, there's no proof that she's committed adultery, 
but maybe she's been in a situation where it's possible she did, and the husband is worried about this. The Bible uses the word jealous. That's not necessarily an evil term. It might be him wanting to make sure that his his marriage is, is secure and safe. Jealousy in Scripture is not always a bad thing. It is sometimes wanting justice, wanting the right thing to happen. Numbers chapters five, number five, numbers five, eleven through thirty-one gives a ritual to be performed by the priest in the tabernacle to determine the guilt or innocence of the woman. I'm going to summarize the ritual and then try to explain it and how we are to understand this. And, and I'm going to challenge you to stick with me. This is hard. You're going to want to tune out and be like, oh, this is just ridiculous. Stick with me. The husband is to bring his wife that he suspects of adultery to the tabernacle with an offering of a certain type of flour. The priest takes what's called holy water. As far as I understand, it's the only reference to holy water in scripture. As far as I can tell, it was probably water taken from the basin that was in front of the tabernacle. He mixes it with dust from the tabernacle. The woman's hair is loosened, let to fall down. Probably a symbol that she is standing on her own authority in front of the Lord God Almighty. That's generally in their culture what this loosening of hair probably would have been understood to mean. The priest proclaims an oath. The woman voluntarily agrees with it. And this is what the oath states. If she has not had an affair, if she did not commit adultery, then nothing will happen to her. If she has had an affair then after this test, she will never again be able to have children. That's the gist of what's going on here. The language in this passage is very difficult. The Hebrew literally says that her thigh will fall away and her belly swell. And as far as I can understand and scholars understand, in their culture, they understood that to mean infertile for the rest of their life. This language is not, as far as I can understand, it is not an abortion. It is not. There is no indication in this text that this woman is pregnant. In fact, if she was pregnant and it was known that she was pregnant, this wouldn't happen. That would be confirmed. But it is that she will not be able to have children the rest of her life. The priest writes down the words of this oath. I don't know what exactly he would have written it on. This is a very old culture. They're traveling through the wilderness. They wouldn't have had books. I don't know what they would have written on. He would scrape it off into the water, and then she would drink the water. If she is innocent, nothing will happen. If she is guilty and has had an affair, she will be infertile for the rest of her life. Now, you're probably feeling very awkward right now. Let's dig into the awkwardness and try to help us to understand what's going on. First, we struggle with this because we're looking from a very modern culture back and we go, this is unfair. What about the husband? Why is it all on the wife? We need to look at this through how they would have understood this. In their culture, and specifically in the cultures around them, in the culture of Egypt that they just left, there are clear laws that a husband could execute his wife simply for thinking she might have had an, adult, an adulterous relationship. No proof was necessary. This is not, that's not what God is saying. That's the other cultures. 
They could easily divorce them and cast them away, kick them out if they wanted to. Again, no proof necessary. So here's God's people about to embark and travel through the wilderness. And God is telling them, don't be like those cultures. Men, you don't get to just kick your wife out because you're suspicious. This was actually a protection for the woman. There is grace and mercy here that she could be cleared of all the accusations. The other thing that I think is very awkward is that this sounds like and is like some very pagan rituals. It sounds like a witch doctor sort of thing. What is going on here? Other cultures throughout history have had similar trials like this. They're known under a blanket term of a trial by ordeal or a trial of ordeal. Probably one of the most famous ones is is a test of witchcraft that happened in the Middle Ages, and it pops up from time to time. The way these worked is that, and there were various forms of this, but a woman would be tied up against, these are not in Scripture. I want to be very clear, not in Scripture. Other cultures. A woman suspected of being a witch would be tied up and thrown into the water. If she sinks and drowns, she's innocent. This is no joke. These things happen. If she floats and she survives, then she is guilty. Well, what's the punishment for being guilty? Death. This is how messed up most of the trials by ordeal are. The person kind of ended up dead or hurt either way. Some other trials by ordeal that we can find in other cultures, there was a placing of hand into boiling water, there was having molten metal poured onto someone's body, and basically, if you survived and were unharmed, then you would be innocent. Or, I'm sorry, then you were guilty. If you didn't survive and it did harm you, you were probably innocent. These trials by ordeal in pagan cultures have some similar things, similar themes. The first is that whatever is done, if we take out any sort of religious aspect, any sort of um, ritualistic aspect, we just look at this kind of from a scientific view. You look at these things, the thing that is done to the person would naturally or normally cause damage or death. Okay, pouring molten metal on someone, you assume is going to hurt them. Sticking your hand in boiling water, you would assume it's going to hurt them. Throwing somebody into the water, tied up, you assume is going to hurt them. This is a common theme. Second, often the innocent person died or was severely harmed. And if they weren't and they were guilty, they were tried for the crime and usually executed. Numbers chapter 6 is very different. It sounds so foreign to us. But understanding how these things worked in other cultures helps us to understand just how different it is. There is nothing in this ordeal. And I really dug into this to try to find out what was going on, what was she drinking. There is nothing in that cup that should have caused any harm to this woman at all. It is just water with dust in it. That's all it is. Now, you might say, oh, there's diseases. They lived in the wilderness. It's like having a picnic at the beach and being surprised that there's sand in your food. They would have been eating dust all the time. There was nothing in this water, scientifically speaking, that should have harmed this woman at all. So the normal, natural outcome would have been for her to be just fine. Secondly, the teaching here is that the innocent person is fine. 
she's not harmed at all. Only the guilty would experience any effects. So why did God give them this law and why here in Numbers? He gives this law first, I believe, to protect women. And I know that's so hard from a modern scientific mindset, but if we can understand this from their view and how harsh it was for women, this was a protection on the women. The other reason God gives this is that throughout Scripture in God's plan, the relationship between a husband and wife matters. It is important. And this community that God was shaping and forming and and bringing out into the wilderness and bringing into the promised land, they had to understand marriage matters. They were not to treat it as something light or unimportant. Adultery had to be dealt with. Also, the community had to be upheld. The jealousy, the suspicion of the husband could have developed into something far worse, causing dissension in the community. The adultery of the wife could have developed into something far worse that would cause dissension in the community. God wanted these people to represent him. These things needed to be dealt with. And because throughout Scripture, the relationship between a husband and wife reflects the relationship between God and his people. The faithfulness of a wife to her husband is a reflection throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, of how we are to be faithful to God. God who saved us, who rescued us, who claimed us as his own. So there's an overview, quickly, of the woman caught in adultery. Now we need to move on to another very obscure law, the Nazarite vow. Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Again, I'm not going to read it. Let me summarize this one quicker. I think it's a bit easier to understand. This was a special vow of someone, and it clearly says of a man or a woman, who wishes to dedicate themselves to the Lord in a special way for a period of time. Now, that's very vague, and I really dug into this to go, why? Why would they do this? Under what reason or for what purpose would they want to make this vow? And it just doesn't say. It says what the vow is. It says how they are to do it. It doesn't say why they would do this, other than to be set apart for the Lord. And that's really the main point, to be set apart, to be used by God for a defined period of time. In general, the Nazarite vow had a time limit on it. The person would say, I'm doing this for seven years, 15 years, whatever it is, a week, two weeks. Occasionally, we have some examples in Scripture of those who uh, someone, their parent, had made a Nazarite vow for them before they were born. Samson is a a great and horrible example of that. Um, We'll talk about him in a second. The conditions of this vow is that they were not to eat or drink anything fermented or anything made from grapes. They were not to cut their hair during the length of their vow. There's where you get a big part of the Samson story. They must not go near a dead body, even if a close family member were to die. Now, again, death in that culture was very different. It was very common. It was very up close and personal. They didn't have hospitals in the wilderness. Someone died, they died in your house. The funeral would have taken place right there in your tent. It would have been a gathering of people right there. And God is telling this person, for the time of this vow, you were not to be near that dead body, even if they were a loved one. Now, I want to be careful. God is not putting this on all of his people. 
This was a voluntary vow, but it teaches us some things. If they were to come in contact with a dead body during the time of the vow, the time of the vow would start over. There's actually an account in Jewish history of um, a woman who took a Nazarite vow for 15 years. And just a few short months before the end of her Nazarite vow, someone died uh, in her presence and she had to start the whole thing over again. That is one of the conditions of the vow. If someone died in your presence, you came in contact with a dead body, the time period would start over. During the period of the vow, the Nazarite is holy to the Lord, set apart for service to God. That's what the word Nazarite or Nazir means, set apart to the Lord. At the end of the vow, the person would offer a sin offering. Then they would cut their hair. The hair was a symbol of the time period of the vow. It would grow out the whole time of the vow. They would cut their hair and offer their hair on the altar as an offering to the Lord, symbolizing that the entirety of the vow had been done as an offering to the Lord. Now, what's going on here? Again, very foreign culture. So there's some key details that are helpful. The language in this vow directly represents the language that was applied to the high priest in Israel. One thing after another If you remember, the high priest in Israel was the only one that could go into the presence of the Lord in the innermost room of the tabernacle. Only one and only once a year. And so there were restrictions on the high priest for his time of service that were extreme. And those restrictions are echoed here to anyone, any Israelite from any family, both men and women that want to serve the Lord like the high priest. I'm not saying they could go into the Holy of Holies, but it wasn't like only the high priest was holy. Anybody could be set apart to serve the Lord. The high priest served in the very presence of God. There was the same restrictions on contact with someone who had died, same restrictions on alcohol, similar wording as chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. The high priest wore a, a kind of a gold piece on his head that said, holy to the Lord or consecrated, set apart to the Lord. And that same language is used of the Nazarite's hair. So in the camp, although only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, anyone could serve God in this way. I mentioned earlier that the most famous example in Scripture is Samson, uh, which really helps you to understand the Samson story because he was a terrible Nazarite. Absolutely awful. There's a scene in the, the story of Samson where he takes honey out of the carcass of a lion. And when you read it, you're like, what is this? This is weird. He couldn't touch a dead body. And he's just like, I'm hungry. I'm going to take it. Samson was a terrible person. But God used him. And I think that's the point of the story of Samson. God used him. There are other examples. Some people theorize that Samuel, uh, the prophet, had a Nazarite vow set apart from birth. John the Baptist, there's a lot of indications that he might have had a Nazarite uh, vow or he was living that for his life. There's an account in Acts of Paul where he's shaving his head. That's probably what's going on is that for a brief period of time, he took a Nazarite vow. So it was a voluntary thing. Now, what does all this mean? It meant that God wanted his people to be set apart and holy. And this vow and these people living in their midst for whatever reason were living demonstrations of this. And it was available to all of God's people. God is using these four laws, these two general and two specific laws, 
to teach them that he is holy and that they live in his presence. And that that presence, God's holy presence among his people must make them different. They cannot live like the world around them. As they travel through the wilderness, they are called to be different than the nations around them. Like a husband, God has committed himself to his people and they are to remain faithful to him. They are to live pure and undefiled. These laws placed here remind them as they're about to journey, live differently because your God is among you. And all of this leads up to the end of chapter 6, which is a beautiful proclamation of blessing. Look at chapter 6, starting in verse 22. God commands Aaron to pronounce these words over his people. And it is beautiful. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. That's powerful. My first church where I served as a youth pastor, at the end of every service, the pastor would recite these words over the congregation. Maybe you've been at other churches that do the same. I think it's beautiful and it's powerful. My only struggle with that is that without the context, I'm not sure we really understand what's going on. But they're beautiful words. The blessing builds in three parts. Each one gets to a greater blessing, and each one gets to a longer phrase in Hebrew. God is emphasizing kind of the building nature of this, and it all leads up to the fourth statement, which is a summary of why this blessing is given. First, there's a general statement of blessing from the Lord. Basically, I will bless you. This is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 12, God's blessing on Abraham. He calls to Abraham, says, I will bless you. You and your offspring will be my people, and I will bless you. Secondly, he says, the Lord's face will shine upon them and be gracious to them. God looks on his people with favor and love and grace, and mercy. It's like having a friend, and and there's something going on, and you want to accuse them of something, but you know that friend is a friend of the king, and has the king's favor. What a beautiful thing to have the king's favor. What protection, what blessing. How much more so to have God Almighty's favor. And that's part of the pronouncing of this blessing. I will look upon you, and my face will shine on you. And then it develops further into the third Uh, statement. The Lord turns his face toward them and gives them peace. God chooses to give these people, this ragtag group of people traveling through the wilderness, his particular focus and attention and to give them peace. This blessing means that God has put his name on the Israelites That's what's made clear in verse 27. So they, the priests as they pronounce this, they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Do you remember the movie Toy Story where where Woody lifts up his foot and he has Andy's name written on it? It's such a powerful moment in that story. I know that's not deep and theological, but it's such a beautiful picture of I'm owned. I am claimed and loved by someone. That's what's going on here. God is saying, I'm putting my name on these people. They are mine. He promises to be present with him. 
In fact, the, the sequence of events here shows that the blessing is actually God himself. The blessing is God's presence. Everything else comes from the truth that God is present with them. The placement here is not an accident. God's blessing to his people is because of his presence with his people. And his presence with his people dictates their day-to-day activities. They are to live in response to that presence. We cannot have the blessings without the presence. And if God is present with us, we must be different. That's what's going on in these chapters. It is a call to be different because God is among you. As we fast forward in scripture, there is a constant theme that comes up in regards to God being with his people and God's blessing being with his people. And a powerful example of that is in the New Testament. In fact, I would say this is a culmination of what God has been building throughout the Old Testament. Jesus comes along, and and these archaic, very difficult-to-understand laws are going to help us to understand some beautiful things about our Lord and Savior. Early in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, he says this in chapter 1, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The God that was so holy that death could not stand in his presence. The God was so holy that the camp had to be purified and anyone impure needed to be put out of the camp. That God has come in Jesus Christ and is God with us. It sounds so sweet and beautiful and and kind of the the nativity scene and we look at it and we ooh and we ah, but when we understand the concept from the Old Testament of God with his people, we go, whoa, that's amazing. How can that God come and live with his people? John uses similar language. Chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the Greek there is tabernacled. He set up the Holy of Holies in our midst, who is Jesus Christ. Holy, perfect purity in our presence. Jesus came to be God with us. And all the requirements from the Old Testament of holiness and purity and faithfulness must come to our minds to appreciate what this means. But it also raises the question, how? How is that possible? How can a holy God dwell among unholy, impure people? In Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, there's a beautiful account. Jesus is in one of the towns, and a man came along who was covered with leprosy. What should have been done to this man? He should have been kicked out of the camp, lived outside. Nobody could touch him because he would defile anything that he touched. And look at what Jesus, God with us, did. The man said, Lord, if you are willing, you could make me clean. And Jesus could have just said, be clean. I can't get near you because you are defiled, but you be clean over there. What does Jesus do? He walks up and touches him. By law, that would have made Jesus unclean. But something miraculous and beautiful happens. And Jesus points it out. I am willing, he said. He doesn't say be healed. What does he say? Be clean. The presence of God cleanses someone else who is unworthy to stand 
in God's presence. Matthew chapter 9, there are two quick accounts. Verses 20 to 22, kind of nestled in, in the midst of the one. A woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Remember the bodily discharge that we all said, ooh, here it is. What should have happened to this woman? Outside the camp, don't touch anybody, she's unclean. She comes up and touches Jesus. And rather than turning to her and striking her dead, he says, you are healed. And his holiness and his purity goes into her and she is healed. And that's part of a larger story in verses 18 through 26. In verse 18, a synagogue leader comes to Jesus, kneels before him and says, my daughter has just died. But come and put your hand on her and she will live. Verse 25, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. Jesus, the most holy person ever, touches a dead body and life enters that body. That's why these stories are there. And that's why the richness of the Old Testament helps us to understand and worship God and say, now I see bigger than I understood. This is what you are doing. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law by bringing life and holiness and purity. He doesn't just nail the rules on the wall and say, live up to it. Oh, you didn't do it. He says, I'm going to make you pure. I'm going to make you clean. And I'm going to bring you dead back to life. There's an interesting detail in the Nazarite vow. At the end of the Nazarite vow, before the Nazarite's hair was offered on the altar, they had to do something unusual. They had to offer a sin or a guilt offering. And people struggle with this. What, I mean, this was arguably the most holy person in Israel for this time period. Why would they have to offer a sin offering or a guilt offering before they could offer the hair from the time of their vow? And it's because no matter how holy they were acting, they were still a sinner. And before they could bring something to God to say, I I took this period of time and fulfilled this vow and I did it for you. Before they could offer that as an act of praise, they had to be cleansed from their sin. Jesus died to save us from our sins. He is our guilt offering. And now because of that, we can live out what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, living our life as a sacrificial offering to the Lord. So often we get this backwards. People want to come to the Lord, turn over a new leaf and say, I'll live for the Lord. So they try to do all these holy, righteous things. And they say, look, God, for everything I've done for you, I'm offering it to you. And he's going, where's the sin offering? See, in the scripture, we have to come through Jesus. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. For our offerings of our life to have any meaning and purpose at all, we must first be cleansed from our sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on the cross and rose from the grave that we might be God's people, claimed by him, living in his holy presence, cleansed not by our acts of righteousness, but by Jesus Christ. But then we can't forget all the purity laws. We are called to be different. 1 Peter 1, 15-16 says this, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That is not an Old Testament verse, friends. It's a New Testament verse. 
Jesus has died and risen again. People are saved by him and they are still told, be holy. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty is with you and he is a holy God. At the end of the Bible, all the way at the end of Revelation, there's a new heavens and a new earth in the city of Jerusalem. And we don't have time to go into all the ramifications of it. But it says about this, this eternal place where God will dwell with his people, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the Lamb's book of life is filled with names of people saved by Jesus Christ. Not people that were more holy than their neighbor, not people that measured up to some standard, but those saved by Jesus Christ. And it ends or explains with this statement. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among them, among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You hear the echoes of the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And it's all through Jesus Christ. Friends, we so often want the blessing of God. And we pour out in prayer, God bless me, bless my children, bless our churches, bless our nation, bless our world, and we forget the rest of it. He is a holy God. And the blessing that we're actually asking for is the holy presence of God. And the holy presence of God makes us different. Come to Jesus. Be changed by Jesus. Experience the blessing of the presence of God in your life through Jesus' death and resurrection. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, what a difficult passage, and yet there is riches to be mined here if we would have the humility to understand, and I have just scratched the surface. Father, I pray for each one of us here. May we continue to be students of the word, to be humbly taught by you. And then as we read some of our more common passages that maybe we learned in Sunday school or VBS or or we're just learning now, but we would say, I remember something about that. And you would open our eyes to the truths that you have taught us throughout your word. And Father, I pray as Christians today, forgive us. Forgive us for our lazy attitudes towards purity and holiness. Forgive us for forgetting that you are a holy God dwelling in our midst. And for the theme that runs throughout scripture, that must make us different. And I pray for anyone struggling here, whether it's faithfulness to a spouse or just pure living in their own life, whatever that sin may be, may they bring it to you and say, God, help me. 
I want my life to reflect your purity and holiness. May they seek out a brother or sister in Christ that can help them through that time, help get that sin out of their lives. Father, you come and you change us. And you've given us so many gifts in our lives, whether it be the church or friends or relatives, your word to teach us and to help us in that very difficult process of not being like the world around us. I pray, Father, that the church of Jesus Christ would shine like a city on a hill to this world that is so dark and lost and looking for hope. And may they say that there's something about us that is different and we could say, yes, let me tell you about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. In whose name we pray, amen.